Now this morning, we turn to Luke chapter 24, and we're going to be in verses 13 through 35 to see another Jesus encounter. Now, for the past few weeks, we've been talking about these Jesus encounters that happened in the Bible, right? These are real moments where Jesus touches and transforms real people with his grace and with his truth. Now, here in Luke 24, we have an encounter that two people had with Jesus on the road to a village called Emmaus. Now, this is one of a series of encounters that people had with Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead. You guys remember that for 40 days, Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples. Acts 1-3 tells us, by many infallible proofs or many unmistakable proofs. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus is a big deal, right? Christianity either stands or falls on this point. So Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples were left with zero doubt about it. Remember, these are the same people that Jesus is going to send out into the world with the saving message of the risen Christ. So yes, they better be convinced that Jesus is alive. Now we know that his death was verified. When Jesus was on the cross, the Roman government verified his death. Now, during these 40 days, his resurrection would be verified by reliable witnesses. The Bible tells us that he appeared to over 500 people. And here's the thing I want you to think about, that among them, most were not expecting to see Jesus again especially him risen and alive. And it's interesting to me that Jesus showed himself, he presented himself alive with many infallible proofs for 40 days. Now, you Bible students, that number 40 should trigger something in your memory, right? The Bible often uses the number 40 to represent testing. During these 40 days, people had the time to test and verify that the resurrection appearances of Jesus were not just false rumors or hallucinations or a bad case of mistaken identity. People saw him. They heard him. They felt him. They interacted with him. There was no doubt about it. Jesus had risen from the dead and he is alive. And here in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, we have a story, one of these stories of these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that happened during these 40 days. And in this story, we encounter Jesus. That's the point for our time together right now to encounter Jesus, and we see again his transforming power at work in real people, and we see that he reignites hopeless hearts. So let's look at this story. We begin in verses 13 through 14. As we talk about this Jesus encounter on the road to Emmaus, the Gospel of Luke tells us, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. Now, these two verses set the stage for the story that follows. 
The gospel writer shines the spotlight on four details. The first were introduced to two characters. Now, Luke's gospel simply introduces them as, quote, two of them. Now, we learn two things about these two people in this story. The first thing is that they were disciples of Jesus. You know those words, of them? They connect these two with Jesus' disciples that are mentioned in Luke 24, verses 8 through 12. In fact, further in this story, in verse 18, Luke goes on to tell us the name of one of them, Cleopas. Now, the other disciple remains unnamed. Now, people offered their suggestions to who this unnamed person was, but in the end, we just don't know for sure. But let me say this. I see something special here about how God did not identify who this person was. We don't know if this person was a man or a woman. We don't know if this person was young or old or educated or uneducated. But we do know this. Whoever this person was, this person loved Jesus. This person loved Jesus. Now, I want you to think with me on this. Being unknown, being unnamed, we can imagine ourselves as this person, right? We can insert ourselves into the story. May I encourage you to do something this morning? Instead of just watching this scene play out as a spectator, a bystander, let's imagine ourselves as being in it. Let's imagine ourselves as being this unnamed disciple. Yes, this story is about their Jesus encounter, but listen, it can also be about ours. Because God wants you, God wants me to have a Jesus encounter today. So that's the first thing that we know about these two people. They were disciples of Jesus. The second thing is that there are three words in this story that characterize the state, the condition that these two were in. In verse 17, we see that they were sad. In verse 21, we see that they were disappointed. And then in verses 22 through 24, we see that they were bewildered. So two characters are introduced. They're both disciples of Jesus, and they're sad, they're disappointed, and they're bewildered. Now, the second thing that the author tells us is the time when the story happens. Luke's gospel tells us it happens that same day. Now, that means that this story is happening on Sunday. It's the third day since Jesus was crucified on a cross and buried in a tomb. It's the same day that certain women went to the tomb and found it open and empty. It's the same day that these same women claimed that angels told them that Jesus had risen from the dead and that he's alive. And it's the same day that a guy by the name of Simon Peter went to investigate the empty tomb. We read all these details in Luke 24, verses 1 through 12, and it's on this same day that this story happens. Number three, a location is mentioned. We meet these two disciples having left Jerusalem and now they're on a road to a village called Emmaus. Now Luke chapter 24 verse 13 tells us that Emmaus was located west of Jerusalem about seven miles. 
Passover week had ended, the Sabbath was over, and there was no reason for these two to remain in Jerusalem one minute longer. It was time to leave. It's time to go back home. Now, you have to think what Jerusalem meant for these people. One week earlier, on Sunday, being in Jerusalem was a hopeful and joyful occasion, right? One week earlier on Sunday, Jesus rode into the city on a donkey and people were waving palm branches and welcoming him with shouts of celebration. Save now, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was a week ago on that Sunday. But on this Sunday, Jerusalem was a sad place. For these two... This city was now a city full of disappointment, despair, and danger. For three days, Jesus' disciples were in a state of shock and deep sadness, and they were hiding from the Jewish authorities in fear of being arrested and possibly killed for being Jesus followers. So you can imagine, once the Sabbath was over and the travel ban was lifted, these guys are looking at each other and they're saying, it's time to leave Jerusalem, it's time to go back home. They didn't want to stay in Jerusalem one minute longer. And number four, Luke tells us that they were conversing with each other. That's what we see, that's what we hear. These two on a road to a village called Emmaus, and they're conversing with each other. Verse 14 tells us that they talked together. Verse 15 tells us that they converse and they reasoned. In fact, that word reasoned can also be translated, they debated. And the topic of discussion, the topic of debate, Luke tells us, was, quote, all these things which had happened. Now, this includes the death of Jesus, the open tomb of Jesus, the missing body of Jesus, and the report of certain women that Jesus had risen from the dead and is alive. Imagine the scene. Here we see these two talking and debating out loud, trying to process and make sense of everything that just happened in the past few days. And let's remember that their conversation happened through the filter of sadness, disappointment, and bewilderness. The stage is set. Now let's see this dramatic story unfold. Now let's see this Jesus encounter that these two people had. Verses 15 and 16 says, so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. So here in this part of the story, the risen living Jesus enters it. And this is when the story starts getting good, guys. Jesus drew near and went with them. Now, Mark 16, 12 says, he, that's Jesus, appeared in a different form to two of his followers who were walking from Jerusalem into the country. Now, we know from the Bible that Jesus rose from the dead with a physical resurrected body. Dr. Luke verifies this in Luke 24, verses 36 through 43. 
Now, though he still bore the nail prints in his hand, and though the spear mark was still in his side, listen, Jesus no longer looked bruised and beaten. He no longer looked torn and tattered as he did a few days earlier on the cross. He appeared in a different form. And we see here that Jesus drew near to his disciples. Wow. Their hearts were broken and Jesus drew near to them. Their faith was failing and Jesus drew near to them. Their hope was gone and Jesus drew near to them. They left the company of the other disciples in Jerusalem and Jesus drew near to them. I want you to see this. These two were not looking for Jesus. These two weren't looking for Jesus in their time of disappointment and despair. But you know what? Jesus came looking for them. And Jesus drew near to them. Jesus drew near to them in their darkest moment. And he is about to set their hearts on fire again. He's about to end their long, cold night of hopeless despair by causing the brilliant radiance of renewed hope in the risen Christ to shine in their hearts again. Jesus drew near to them. And listen, here's the application. And Jesus has drawn near to you too. I hope you get this. He is here with you right now. Now, I don't know what kind of baggage you brought into this place. But you need to know that he is with you right now under all the dark clouds of disappointment and despair. Under all the dark clouds of lovelessness and loneliness, of all the dark clouds of chaos and confusion, under the dark clouds of faithlessness, failures, fear. You might not know it right now, but you need to understand he is with you at this very moment. Wow. But Luke goes on to tell us that their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. The New Living Translation puts it this way, but God kept them from recognizing them. Now, why would Jesus do that? I think what's happening here is that Jesus wanted to open the eyes of their hearts first before opening the eyes in their heads. He wanted them to first see him in scripture before recognizing him with human sight. Guys, let's think about this. Seeing Jesus with human sight was only for a limited time, 40 more days at best. But then Jesus is gonna go back to heaven. And he's no longer going to be physically visible and physically tangible and physically audible. But seeing Jesus in the scriptures would bring him into plain view every day for the rest of their lives. I want you to hear me on this. Sometimes, sometimes God restrains Sometimes God restrains us from seeing those things that we want to see most 
in order to teach us the things that we need to know most. Hashtag, we walk by faith, not by sight. Sometimes God restrains us from seeing those things that we want to see most in order to teach us the things that we need to know most. And that is what's happening here. So as Jesus enters the story in verse 17, we read, and he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? I want you to see here that Jesus isn't just drawn near to them. He also engages with them. And in doing this, Jesus sees and hears their sadness. Jesus is not detached. Jesus is not distant from our human experiences and emotions. He fully understands them, guys. And he relates to us with empathy and compassion. Remember, Isaiah 53 calls Jesus, there in verse 3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows what sadness looks like. He knows what sadness sounds like. He knows what sadness feels like. And Jesus is about to transform sadness into gladness. And he is not going to do this with happy, sappy cliches. He's not going to do this with sentimental platitudes. He's not going to do this with a motivational pep talk. Listen, sadness has to be dealt with on a deeper level than this. Jesus will not simply band-aid their sorrow. He's going to deal with the root cause of it. Jesus is going to renew their faith, and he's going to reignite their hope in him by bringing them a clear vision of himself through a clear understanding of God's word. And so the drama continues. In verses 18 and 19, then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? I gotta tell you, this scene is classic, right? I mean, when you just read this as a story, this moment is classic. Of course Jesus knew what happened in Jerusalem because it all happened to him. And I can imagine Luke, as he wrote those words, he must have chuckled. And I can imagine Theophilus, as he read this story, he let out this short burst of laughter. I think what's going on here is that Cleopas assumed that Jesus was one of the many visitors who was in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover week. But he had no idea that the person he was talking about was right beside him. Kind of reminds me of an episode of Undercover Boss, right? Seen that show, Undercover Boss? But I love the question Jesus asked in verse 19 when he said to them, what things? Now, Jesus didn't ask this question because he didn't know the answer to it, obviously. He asked it to move this conversation where it needed to go in order to show them the real cause of their despairing hearts. Then he can deal with those issues that needed to be dealt with. 
Here's the application. Too often we remain in the jail cell of sadness without having thought and talked it through with Jesus. We choose to stay there merely for emotional reasons. Jesus, however, wants to deal with the root cause of our sadness. And he wants to rescue us from it. He wants to renew our faith. He wants to reignite hope in our hearts. And so he says, let's talk about it. Some of you here are dealing with really heavy stuff. Some of you here are trying to process the pain and grief that you're going through right now. And Jesus is here saying, let's talk about it. Let's process this together. Let's think this through together. Let's talk this thing through together. And Jesus is doing this with these two disciples. And so verses 19 through 24, we see how these two responded to that question. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a mighty, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. There's a couple of things that we discover about these two in their response. The first is they were disappointed. I want you to see in verse 21 those three words, we were hoping. That's past tense. We were hoping. Listen, they expected the Christ to be a political liberator. Their hope was for King Jesus to liberate them from Roman rule. But instead, he was crucified and he died on a Roman cross. For them, the Jesus Chronicles ended with a surprise ending. It was over. There are no more chapters left to be written. There are no more chapters in this story. They were disappointed. We had hoped. But secondly, they were also bewildered. In verse 22, they said, they astonished us. I want you to see that these two were skeptical about the resurrection reports. There were reports of people encountering angels, announcing that Jesus had risen from the dead. I mean, they heard all that. They heard the chatter. They heard the talk, but you know what the conclusion was that they reached? Those women probably really didn't see angels. They probably just saw a vision of angels. 
In other words, yeah, I, I hear what they're saying, but the most likely explanation is they, they were just seeing things. It wasn't really angels. It was just something that might have appeared to look like an angel or at least a vision at best. And when they heard the reports of Jesus or that, that people had gone to Jesus' tomb and found it empty, instead of saying, wow, the tomb is empty, Jesus, is it true that he could be alive? What they focused in on is that all of those people that said they went to the tomb and found it empty, none of them actually said that they saw Jesus alive with their own eyes. And so in their mind, they're thinking, it's an assumption you're making, but I want more proof than that. These guys were skeptical. They were not anticipating a resurrection of Jesus. They weren't looking for it. They weren't expecting to see a risen, living Jesus who rose from the dead. And I'll tell you, that part right there makes the conclusion of the story that much more powerful and meaningful. Because in the end, we're going to discover that these two guys, they had to believe in the risen Jesus against their own will. Wow. And then in verses 25 and 26... Jesus speaks up. Then he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? I want you to see how Jesus starts his response. He says, O foolish ones. Oh, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. The paraphrase, the message puts it this way, so thick-headed, so slow-hearted. Why can't you simply believe all that the prophet said? Now, I want you to observe something. Notice that Jesus did not chide them for not believing the testimony of the women. And Jesus did not chide them for not believing the testimony of the empty tomb. What does he chide them for? For not believing the testimony of Scripture. Jesus chided these two for not believing the testimony of Scripture. These two misinterpreted the Old Testament's message about Christ. Therefore, they misunderstood the events that just happened to Jesus. Instead of rejoicing, they were sad. Instead of being hopeful, they were hopeless. They were disappointed, and they were frustrated, and they were sad over things. And listen, they were disappointed, they were frustrated, and they were sad over things God never said would happen. Over things God never promised he would do. When did God ever say that the Christ would liberate Israel from Rome's tyranny at his first coming? He never said that. And yet these guys are upset. These guys are sad, disappointed, and bewildered. When did God ever promise that the crown would come without the cross? He never said that. And yet these guys are upset. Application? Guys, let's be honest. We do the same thing too, don't we? We get frustrated and upset and disappointed with God that he never promised that he would do, he never said would happen. Here's a personal example. So often, 
how often do we get upset with God when he doesn't answer all of our why questions during the difficult times in life? There are some people that are here and some people who are gonna listen to this message later and this applies to you, you're angry with God because of the painful, hard circumstance that you're experiencing, and so you drop to your knees and you cried out to God, why is this happening? And the response you got was silence. And so you got back up, you folded your arm, and you walked out mad. When did God ever say, when did God ever promise us that he will answer our why questions on this side of heaven? He never said that. He never promised that. You know what God did say? He said, trust me. You know what God did say? He said, I will work this out for your good. That is what he said. In fact, when Jesus, the son of God, when he was hanging there on that cross, suffering and dying there, he asked the big why question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember how God responded? Remember? Silence. And do you remember how Jesus responded to God's silence there in Psalm 22? Instead of getting mad with God about promises that God never made, he planted himself firmly in the promises that God did make. He reminded himself of who God is and what God promised to do in and through his sufferings. And you know how, God, you know how Jesus responded to God's silence? Falling back on those rock-solid promises, those assurances that God made in Psalm 22, verse 22, we see that as Jesus asked God why and God responded with silence, Jesus then responded this way, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. God promised in the Old Testament that Christ would suffer and die on the cross. Then he will enter into his glory. Listen, everything happened just as God said it would. There was no real cause for disappointment and despair here. Glory would follow suffering. The crown would follow the cross. It's time to rejoice, not be sad. It's time to be full of hope, not hopeless. Jesus had risen. He's alive. And their hearts were misguided because the meaning of God's word was misunderstood. These guys needed something more than just a group hug. They needed the clear, sound, Jesus-focused exposition of Scripture. 
And Jesus brought it, didn't he? Look at verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus opened up Moses and all the prophets. That refers to the Old Testament. Jesus calls Moses and all the prophets scripture. That means the Old Testament is the word of God. He opened it and he unpacked it. Imagine being there, listening and learning from Jesus, teaching through the Old Testament Bible, showing himself in Genesis to Malachi. Wow. Jesus explained what the Old Testament says about the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ to heaven. I can imagine him opening up the Old Testament and explaining the types, the symbolism, the shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, such as the Passover lamb and the animal sacrifices and the brazen serpent in the wilderness. Listen, all these are about him. I can imagine Jesus opening up the Old Testament and explaining all the prophecies about Christ there. Starting with Genesis 3.15, there is an estimated 300 plus prophecies about Jesus in Genesis to Malachi. I'm sure Jesus, as he opened up the Old Testament and began to remind them of these prophecies, that he probably cited and referenced Psalm 41 verse 9 that tells us that the Christ will be betrayed by a close friend. Zechariah 11.2 tells us that the betrayer will do it for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 tells us that Christ will be put to death by crucifixion. Psalm 34 verse 20 tells us that none of Christ's bones will be broken. Zechariah 12.10 tells us that his side will be pierced. Isaiah 53.9 tells us that Christ will be buried in a rich man's grave. Psalm 16.10 tells us that Christ will rise from the dead. And Psalm 68 verse 18 tells us that Christ will ascend to heaven. I'm sure Jesus referenced, he cited these passages and he helped them understand the meaning of this, that it all points to him. Everything happened according to God's plan. And Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled all these prophecies, and this proves that he is God's Messiah, the real Christ and the Savior of the world. He opened the scriptures to them. Wow. Listen, Christ is the centerpiece of the Bible. Christ is in all the scriptures, and this includes the Old Testament. Besides the verse that we look at here in Luke 24, also in verses 44 and 45, it says, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. In John 5, 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. In Hebrews 10, 7, the New Living Translation puts it this way, Christ said, I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the scriptures. Listen, Christ is in all the scripture, and he is in the Old Testament, and Jesus expounded this for them. 
Think about that. Starting with Genesis, moving on through Malachi, Jesus is showing these guys himself in the Bible. In Genesis, Christ is the seed of the woman and the sacrificial lamb that God will provide on Mount Moriah. In Exodus, Christ is seen in the Passover lamb, the manna from heaven and the tabernacle. In Leviticus, Christ is seen in the offerings and the high priest. In Numbers, Christ is seen in the bronze serpent. In Deuteronomy, Christ is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, Christ is the commander of God's army. In Judges, Christ is the angel, the messenger of the Lord who appeared to Manoah and his wife. In Ruth, Christ is seen in Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, Christ is the root and the offspring of David and the rightful heir of the throne of David. In First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, Christ is he who is greater than Solomon. In Ezra, Christ is seen in Zerubbabel, the builder of God's house. In Nehemiah, Christ is seen in Nehemiah, the restorer of God's city and God's people. In Esther, Christ is seen in Mordecai, the one who stands in the gap for God's exiled people in the world. In Job, Christ is the ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, Christ is our sacrifice, savior, shepherd, and king. In Proverbs, Christ is the source of God's wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, Christ is the true meaning of life. In the Song of Solomon, Christ is our bridegroom. In Isaiah, Christ is Israel's Messiah, suffering servant, and the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. In Jer- Jeremiah, Christ is the righteous branch and the Lord our righteousness. In Lamentations, Christ is seen in Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, Christ is the true shepherd who will feed and deliver his flock. In Daniel, Christ is the son of man and the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, Christ is seen in Hosea, the faithful husband. In Joel, Christ is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. In Amos, Christ is the burden bearer. In Obadiah, Christ is the mighty savior. In Jonah, Christ is seen in Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. In Micah, Christ is the everlasting ruler. In Nahum, Christ is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, Christ is God's anointed one and savior. In Zephaniah, Christ is the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Haggai, Christ is the greater glory who would visit the second temple. In Zechariah, Christ is Israel's Messiah who suffered at his first coming into the world and he will rule in power and glory when he returns. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness. Listen, he's in every book of the Bible. And if you don't see Jesus in the Bible, then you're missing it. This is the reason why J.C. Ryle, that beautiful pastor in Liverpool, England, born 1816, went to heaven in 1900. He said this, quote, let it be a settled principle in our minds in reading the Bible that Christ is the central son of the whole book. So long as we keep him in view, we shall never greatly err in our search for spiritual knowledge. Once losing sight of Christ, we shall find the whole Bible dark and full of difficulty. The key of Bible knowledge is Jesus Christ. God's word is about Jesus. And God's word takes us to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who rescues us from the pit of hopelessness and despair. And so the story continues. Verses 18 through 31, then they drew near to the village where they were going. And he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. Listen, this is another sermon 
from this story right here. And that's for another day. But what I do want to draw your attention to is verse 31. This is the moment that Luke tells us, then their eyes were open and they knew him. God caused them to recognize the risen Jesus. Now, earlier, they saw Jesus in the scriptures with their hearts. Now they see Jesus face to face with their eyes. But notice, as, as quickly as he was made known to them, we see in verse 31, and he vanished from their sight. Why would he do that? In fact, this isn't the only time in the post-resurrection stories that Jesus did this. He seemed to do this on a regular basis with people that he was revealing himself to. Why would he vanish from their sight? I believe that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples how to see him by faith. That this is more reliable and more reassuring than seeing him with human sight. You see, by vanishing, human sight could no longer see Jesus. The eyes of faith, however, can still see Jesus knowing that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. And that's why the Bible tells us that we relate to Jesus by faith, not by sight. Guys, our human sight is deceiving. There are times in our life, and we appreciate those times, that we feel the presence of Jesus so near. There are times it just seems like everything's going our way. But then there are also those moments in our life that we feel like Jesus isn't there. Things seem to be collapsing all around us. And human sight is deceitful because Human sight tells us Jesus bailed on you. He's not with you anymore. But listen, the eyes of faith through the lens of Scripture, that's 2020. When our vision of Christ is not dependent on human sight, but the eyes of faith, no matter what condition we're in in life, we can be fully confident that Jesus is with us because we see him. Not only in the good times, but also in the bad. Not only in the pain-free times, but also in the painful times. As great as it was for them to recognize him with their human eyes, they also needed to see him as he vanished. And even though Jesus was no longer in plain view of human sight, for these two now, Jesus was still right in front of them as they now could see him by faith through the lens of the scriptures that Jesus just unpacked for them. And so in verse 32, they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? I love this. These two felt spiritual heartburn. They felt the sadness, the disappointment, and the bewilderment, bewilderment burn away. Now there is the ever-increasing blaze of renewed faith, revived hope, and resurrection life in their hearts. And we see what God's fire starter for a burning heart is, right? The scriptures. The Bible. The word of God. 
A.B. Simpson, born 1843, went to heaven in 1919. He said, quote, and I love this, his word is not mere intellectual light, but spiritual life and celestial fire. That is the scripture. Psalm 19.7 tells us that God's word revives the soul. Here's the application. If your heart is lifeless and cold today. You know what you need to do? We don't need more events. We don't need more shows. We don't need more noise. We don't need more hype. What we need to do is meet Jesus in the word. We need to meet Jesus in the word. Open the Bible and see God's promises and believe them and apply them, knowing that in Jesus, all of these promises are in him, yes, and amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that. We need to meet Jesus in the word. God's spirit rekindles the hearts of God's people with God's word to burn and shine for God's son. There is no substitute for this. There is no substitute for clear, sound, Jesus-focused exposition of God's word to reignite our hearts with trust and passion for Jesus. That's why these guys said, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? G. Campbell Morgan, born 1863, went to heaven in 1945. He said something that I think is so prophetic for the church today. He said, quote, there is nothing the church of God needs more than this rekindling fire. We have become altogether too faultily faultless, icily regular, splendidly null, in the case of these men, the fire was rekindled when they took time to listen to Jesus. It was not that they talked to him, but as he talked to them, that they were conscious of this burning. The fire begins to burn when we cease our discussions and listen to the voice of the Lord. Do you understand that the place where we see Jesus the clearest is in the scriptures? And the method that Jesus has mandated for the church to show people Jesus in the scriptures is through the expositional preaching and teaching of it. And yet too often churches are trying to do less preaching and more other stuff. And I hear it so often, people saying, oh, we just need less of the Bible. We just need to have like more seminars. Guys, people need Jesus in the scriptures because Jesus is only, he's the only one that can repair the heart problems. And Jesus did that for these guys. And now their hearts are set on fire. 
Check out what this fire looked like in their life in verses 33 through 35. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jesus and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Jesus transformed these two. And you can see it on their faces, and you could hear it in their talk. Sadness, disappointment, and bewilderment no longer characterized their conversation. Now it was all about the risen and living Jesus. Their hearts were on fire. And these two couldn't keep the news about the risen and living Jesus to themselves. They had to tell others about him, and they did. Because you understand what a big deal it is for us to gather like this on this day, on this Sunday? Think about how many Sundays have come and gone for the past 2,000 years since that Sunday on the road to Emmaus. But on this Sunday, we've gathered here as a church. Why on Sunday? Because Jesus rose again from the dead on Sunday. That means that every time we gather like this, We are here to celebrate the risen and living Jesus. And yet, how is it that there are so many churches, you walk into their sanctuary and it feels like you're at a funeral. It's Sunday. Jesus is alive. It's not time to be hopeless. It's time to be hopeful. It's not time to be sad. It's time to be rejoicing. And if we really believe that Jesus is risen and alive, then we should act like it. We should sound like it. And God feels that flame in our hearts through the expositional preaching and teaching of the word. And then we get to launch out into the world and do what these two guys did tell people about Jesus. Notice, they couldn't even wait to the morning. The moment Jesus vanished, it was nighttime, dinner. I don't even think that they even did the dishes. They were out the door, back in Jerusalem, to tell people about Jesus being alive. Is your heart on fire? Are you excited about Jesus? Is there life? Is there light? Is there heat? Or is it dark? Is it cold? I think that one reason why Jesus showed up when he did on the road to Emmaus is I want you to think that in their sadness, in their disappointment, in their despair, they were going the wrong way. Even though things were hard in Jerusalem, while they were there, they were in the company of other followers, other believers of Jesus, right? But once all that sadness set in, they said, we're done, we're out of here and they bailed out of fellowship. They left it, and they were on their way to go live their life the way they wanted to live it. And that road to to Emmaus, I think, represented more than just seven miles to a small village. I think it represented them. Had they continued on that path, they would have walked farther and farther away from Jesus, farther and farther away from the church. And some of you have done that. And I'm so glad you're here. I mean, you could be somewhere else, but you're here. Even though you're on the journey walking farther and farther away from God's people and the place of resurrection life. But Jesus drew near to them. And he stopped them from going any further away. 
And notice how the story ends. It begins with them leaving Jerusalem. It ends with them going back to Jerusalem, reconnecting with the followers of Jesus. But this time, everything was different because now their hearts are on fire. And maybe there are some people here, the Lord is showing up in your life right now on your road to Emmaus, and he's showing up now before you go any further down that road. And he's using a message like this to bring clear vision of himself again to reignite hopeless hearts. Maybe you're here and you've never given your heart to Jesus. And for the first time, you're beginning to understand why these crazy Christians are the way they are. It's because Jesus is alive. How do you shut up about that? Of course I'm going to love him. Of course I'm going to worship him. Of course I'm going to give him my whole life. He's alive and he saved me and he rescued me. And today the Lord wants to have that encounter with you. And for others of you, you might be like the couple that walked out of first service. Elderly couple. The man said, John, I want to say that thing that you talked about, the why question, we needed to hear that. And he said, I'd like you to meet my wife. And this woman, before she could even say anything, she buried her face in my shoulder and just collapsed emotionally and started sobbing. And the three of us were just holding on to each other, just sobbing out there as she just told me that her two children had been killed. And Jesus met them this morning on the road to Emmaus. And he's here with you. Let's all stand. I'm going to pray, and then the worship team will lead us in one final song. And there will be pastors available either up front here or in the prayer room, and I encourage you, if you're on the road to Emmaus and you just need to be at that place of seeing Jesus clearly again, then let these guys pray for you and let them reignite hope in your hearts again. Amen? Amen. Father, I thank you for your word, for your truth, for the presence of Jesus that never leaves us or forsakes us. He's here right now. And I pray that you'll take this message and use it as the fire starter in our hearts and cause there to be a perpetual, ever-increasing blaze of renewed faith, revived hope, and resurrection life in our hearts. All for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.